Please remain standing for the word of the scripture for today. Today's scripture comes from the uh, book of Micah, verse 6, 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, please your case before the mountains, and let your, the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you, you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I have brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And O oh, my people, remember how what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Bor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord, and what shall come before the Lord, and bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of the body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to do love, kindness, and walk humbly before your God? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Jackie, for reading our lesson to Stephen and our musicians. We're grateful for you leading us in worship and Casey and all of you for your presence with us today. It means a lot to be together on this special holiday weekend with each of you as we give thanks. And uh, it's a great joy also, as we mentioned, uh, to welcome Ani and Jonathan as well. I failed to mention that both these couples were married here at this altar which is a very, very special thing. They have made covenant with God for each other here, and now they're a part of our covenant community as they join us in ministry on our ministry team, and you will enjoy getting to know uh, these two special families. Two weeks ago, we started a series called Life Verses. And if you remember, I had a Bible that belonged to Jenny Swafford, one of our members who passed away about four months ago. And you remember I told the story that when we were visiting with her family, they wanted me to see her Bible. And it was a maroon dog-eared Bible that when you turned it right ways up, you could see paper clips that she had marked her life verses. And my wife and I counted 106 paper clips that were her life verses. And so as we sorted through that, we began to make notes of what she had underlined, underscored, and highlighted. And so that became the series that we started two weeks ago. Two Sundays ago, we began with Proverbs 3, verse 5, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I mentioned to you the bumper sticker that says, Don't believe everything you think. Then last week, we talked about Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works together for good for those that love God, for them that are called according to his purpose. And we talked about the fact that not everything that happens in life is good, and not everything that happens in life is of God, is caused of God, and yet God can use some of the most unbelievable things in our lives to bring about something 
that's good. I've been asking you to send, many of you have sent your, your life verses, and, and this morning, uh, Jackie read for us in context, Micah 6, verse 8. It, this may be some of, some of your life verses as well, and I want us to read it together. I have a slide with Micah 6, verse 8. Uh, if you could, uh, there we go. Let's read that together. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, I want to begin by giving you some background. In the Old Testament, Micah is one of 12 what we call minor prophets in the Old Covenant. It, it, it's called minor, not because his preaching is less significant than the other prophets, but because he's more concise. He's more succinct than other prophets. In fact, what took Ezekiel 48 chapters to write, what took Jeremiah 52 chapters, what took Isaiah 66 chapters, Micah did in seven chapters. Uh, now, I may be wrong, but I think this is why many of you prefer a minor preacher to a major preacher, because you have this idea that you're likely to get to the benediction a little sooner with a minor preacher. Uh, a French Catholic theologian, Francois Fenelon, once said, the more you say, the less people remember. The more you say, the less people remember. My wife will remember this. Several years ago in the North Georgia Conference, we were having our conference for all the churches, pastors, delegates uh, in the Classic Center in Athens, Georgia, which is where the University of Georgia is. The host pastor who recently retired was Dr. Chuck Hodges. It was his chore to give the greeting, to give the welcome, and the bishop asked Dr. Hodges to come to the platform and say a word of welcome. He came to the microphone and said, welcome, and sat down. <laughs> Many of us in the clergy said it's the best sermon that Chuck Hodges ever preached. But it's true. The more you say, the less people remember. His name, Micah, means who is like the Lord. His name is a question. An 8th century prophet from a village called Morasheth, which was a rural backwoods hole in the wall, 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. He was a poor man's prophet. He was a blue-collar prophet, a colleague of Isaiah, who had actually seen and witnessed the destruction of Israel by the Assyrian troops. And now he foresees the same kind of thing that's coming to Judah, the southern kingdom. Micah knows, however, that it's not the strength of the Assyrians that poses the greatest threat to Judah. It's the moral and ethical ineptitude of the Hebrew leaders. In other words, it's not the enemy without, it's the enemy within quite often. In fact, let me just give you a taste because I'm, I'm not sure that you've read Micah in his seven chapters. Let me give you a taste of Micah's preaching. The leaders of Judah and Israel are contemptuous of justice. They twist and distort right living. Judges sell verdicts to the highest bidder. 
priests mass market their teaching in the bookstores. Prophets preach for high fees, all the while posturing and pretending dependence on God. They say, we've got God on our side. He'll protect us from disaster. Why, because of people like you, says Micah, Zion will be turned back into farmland. Jerusalem will end up as a pile of rubble. And instead of the temple on the mountain, it will be a few scraggly pines. He was a very timid preacher. If he'd been a United Methodist pastor appointed, he would have had a string of one-year appointments a mile long. There was no appetite for that kind of prophetic preaching. But Micah is rightly concerned that his kinsmen, his tribesmen, are violating the covenant with God. And though he knows that God will not renege on his part of the covenant, the idolatry and injustice of his people will lead to exile and perhaps implosion from within. It's fascinating to me, when you look at Micah 6, the setting for this text is a courtroom. God has a contention. God has a case against his people. And by the way, who doesn't love a good trial? Uh, some of us, some of you were raised on uh, courtroom dramas like Perry Mason. You have to be over 60 to remember Perry Mason. Or Matlock, which was Andy Griffith on steroids. There was L.A. Law, there was Judge Judy, and there was Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. <laughs> Mercy sakes. Courtroom dramas. And here is God. This is Micah 6. This is the setting. Here is God who is the plaintiff and the people are the defendants. And God puts the chosen ones on the stand. But instead of doing what we expect, instead of presenting evidence against his people, God opens up with a rhetorical question directed at himself. Listen to what he says. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? The question itself presupposes that Judah has gotten tired of God that the chosen children of Yahweh have gotten weary of God. You ever get weary of God? Careful how you answer that. You get weary. I get weary of the church sometimes. There are one or two parishioners. I, sometimes that's another matter. You get weary sometimes. And there are some of you who get weary with your senior pastor there is biblical precedence for the fact that God sometimes is weary of God's people. In fact, you see this in Malachi 2.17, where God says, you have worried me with your words. Parents sometimes do get weary of their children. I, I can recall my mother, who's watching now, mother, forgive me for this, I can recall my mother sometimes saying how sick and tired she would get mostly with my sister and brother, never with me. <laughs> but we could see it coming on. And whenever we saw mother with this sick and tired look on her face, we knew that we had to do two things, one of two things. You either run as fast as you can or you start cleaning, <laughs> which is really why she was 
sick and tired. I saw a t-shirt on a mother with three or four preschoolers around her, her kids the other day, and the t-shirt said, I'm so tired of taking care of my parents' grandchildren. <laughs> we get weary. I've, I've learned something the last seven months, however, I've learned that grandparents never get weary of their grandchildren, mainly because at the end of the day, you can always give them back. But Micah, in this courtroom, implies that the chosen have become weary of God. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? My people, how have I wearied you? Well, for one thing, I appreciate the pronoun. Isn't it wonderful that God never says, you people? He's still claiming us. The good news of the, the entire Bible is that God never unchooses the chosen. But, like a good attorney, Eddie, God doesn't wait for a reply. He continues his investigation. He proceeds with his argument. He says, and I quote, Why I, the Lord, brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I, I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. What's, what's God doing? He's reminding his children of the two anchors of their historical identity. The Exodus and Sinai. Their deliverance and the Decalogue, the Torah, the instruction which God's children vowed to keep as a part of their relationship with God. But they've become weary and apparently they have forgotten their promise. On March the 30th, 1863, in the midst of the Civil War, President Lincoln declared a national day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer. In the declaration, he wrote these words. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power, but we have grown weary of God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power and to confess our sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. March the 30th, 18. 63. When I read that this week, I thought of another life verse. Maybe this is yours. It's 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, where God speaks to King Solomon on a restless night. 
If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Weary. Back, back to the courtroom. In Micah 8, verses 6 and 7, upon hearing God's dispute, God's contention, what do the people want to do? They want to settle. That's what the defendant would do. They respond by saying, with what shall we come before the Lord? Bow ourselves before God on high. What, what do you want of us? They say to the plaintiff. And when they ask the question, they instinctively think they know the answer. They think of the temple sacrifice. What they think God wants is more offerings, more calves. A one-year-old calf would have been three times the worth of an eight-day-old calf. What God wants is more, a thousand rams, which, by the way, according to the book of Kings, was the offering of David. It would take a king to offer a thousand rams. What God wants is 10,000 rivers of oil. Or, or maybe what God really wants is my firstborn son. That is exactly what the, the neighbor Canaanite gods demanded of their people. And again in verse 8, Micah restates the question, lest the jury, which is the mountains, missed it. What does the Lord want of you? And then he answers his own question. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? And what he says next surprises God's children. It turns out God doesn't want something from you. He just wants you. God doesn't need anything of me. He wants me. He wants us to become the living sacrifice. That's Romans 12, verse 1. Make of your own bodies, make of your own lives a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual worship. What God requires of us is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And God requires that, not just of the Hebrews. This is not just Judeo-Christian ethics. God requires that of all people. You say, where are you getting that? Well, in that section, God says, what, is God, what does God require of you, O oh, mortal? He doesn't say man, doesn't say person or Hebrew. He says mortal, which in the Hebrew is Adam. You know that word is Adam. It is a generic term for man. This is what it means to be human, God is saying. It's about justice. It's about mercy. It's about humility. In fact, I think you could reverse paraphrase the text and get the same meaning. It is inhumane to be unjust, to be unmerciful, to be arrogant and egotistical, and it wearies God. Now, please, don't misunderstand. 
Micah is not saying that formal worship, what we're doing here, that, that ceremonial sacrifice is unimportant. He's not saying that. This prophet is not anti-sacramental. He's not anti-liturgical. But he is saying that religious ceremony without ethical obedience will not cut it with our God. Won't cut it. In fact, Jesus makes the same point in his Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew 5, verse 23, when he says to his disciples, look, if you're in the temple, if you're in the synagogue and you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, put your gift down for a moment, go and be reconciled to your neighbor, and then come back and finish your worship. That's really interesting. Because when I read that, it sounds like that Jesus is saying that relationships are more important than worship. And that's not exactly right. But what Jesus is saying is that relationships are a part of our worship. And so let, let me put it in these terms. When I'm at odds with you, there is a block in my relationship to God. You know this is true in your own family, in your own extended family. When there's a conflict between you and your neighbor, it's hard to worship. It's hard to think through that. It's hard to pray through that. And so Jesus is saying, get that right. And you say, well, I didn't do it to them. They have it against me. You initiate. You take the first part and get right with your neighbor and then come back and worship. It reminds me of something else that John said in his first epistle, chapter 4. Whoever says, I love God and hates his brother is a liar. For whoever does not love his sister that he sees every day cannot love God whom he has never seen. In fact, this reminds me not only of Micah's summary, but of Jesus' summary when he was asked one day by a teacher of the law, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus thought for a minute, and then he put together his two life verses. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, 18. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, God doesn't need my stuff. He just wants me. He wants you. And part of our worship is our love of neighbor. It's justice, it's mercy, it's walking humbly with God. In the Hebrew language, the word for walking, halakha, it's hard to say, halakha. And that word not only means walking, it also is the meaning of the word ethics. So it's not just how I talk on Sunday, it's how we walk on Monday. Ethics is knowing the difference between what you have a right to do and what is right to do. That's ethics, that's walking. Last word. We had vacation Bible school this week. Casey, you mentioned it, these wonderful stars 
that are here are an epiphany to us of what happened this week, a revelation of that. Thank you to all the staff and volunteers and especially the kids for a wonderful week. It was amazing to watch them worship in this space and to hear them sing and praise. What you may not know is their mission project was to collect supplies for refugee families who have relocated to Nashville. I have a picture of two boys who went the second mile. Say hello to Logan and Colin Bird. They are twins. I know they don't look it, but they're twins. Uh, they're third graders. They're nine years old. They came to Bible school. They heard about the mission project, and they had an idea. We'll set up a lemonade stand. And they did so in their neighborhood. They asked some of their other colleagues who were at VBS to come and help. And they raised funds because the church asked for refugees. And together, these boys raised $211 for people they don't even know who have a need. When I see that picture, I see two boys, nine years of age, who already get it. They already know what God wants of them. And they're doing it. And so to me, it's not just a PowerPoint picture of Logan and Colin. It's a picture of justice and mercy and humility. It's just a couple of nine-year-olds walking with God, doing what God requires. And when we do, God is pleased, a neighbor is loved, and we are fulfilled. In fact, when we do that, we become fully human. And that's our spiritual worship. We have a stand this morning, a table. There's no lemonade in it. But there's bread and juice, and it won't cost you a penny. But if you eat the bread and drink the cup, it, it may just change the way you walk. I hope it does. What does God want of me? To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. That's a life verse. But it was never intended to just be recited. It's intended to be lived. In Jesus' name.